This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep and sometimes, like today, maybe zoom out to understand, uh, talk to some of the brightest traders, the most brilliant people in the room, those who are building, those who are in the trenches every day, the investors. From the guy who, you know, is cleaning the toilets at, at, at Coinbase or whatever, sometimes we should get that guy on the show because that would be a crazy show to truly understand how this movie came to be, where we are right now, and where we're going. And it's my pleasure to have my good friend Scott Melker on the show. Thanks for coming back on Untold Stories. Thank you so much. Such an honor. Such an honor to be here. It's first week of the new year. Scott, you're a, uh, the wolf of all streets, trader, investor, host of the popular the Wolf of All Streets podcaster, the author of the Wolf Den newsletter. You're a writer. You've been featured in Fox Business, New York Times. Um, and recently you were named Influencer of the Year by Binance. And you've been recognized like, and it's been amazing to kind of watch uh, over the last few years, kind of like your what you've developed as your investing strategy, your thesis, kind of how you stuck to your guns a lot of times. And you came from the world of music. You were a DJ and 20-year 20 20 year music career. You're a world-renowned producer and DJ. You played with some amazing people. And um, a lot of the, lately we've been talking a lot of episodes about like the power of the community and the fan base. A lot of people still don't understand why NFTs are even popular. So you probably have a very deep insight to like how this silent community is really what supports this whole world and actually how we use movies, music, TV as our kind of cultural asset layer. And now we can finally create price discovery around that. Uh, so we have a lot of things to talk about, but what's, what's been on your mind lately? Bitcoin, of course, you know, it, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard not to have the uh, sort of macro picture in mind, just in context of where we are with price and timing. It's a new year. We've just closed out the last one. And I think obviously uh, people are scared and we have that extreme fear and sort of rocky price action in the market. And, you know, I like to remind people at those times that uh, these gen generally tend to be generational opportunities long-term, sort of as you touched on at the beginning, you got to zoom out, you know, but um, it's just a very interesting time to be alive in general in the context of sort of this resurgence of COVID, the Fed maybe giving up on as much money printing. There's just a lot going on and that can affect the market in various and surprising kind of kind of ways. What really gets me is that it's never been simple, right? Price action, Bitcoin, the larger crypto markets. We're not, you know, looking at this multi-hundred-year-old mature world that we can look at back testing and everything. We're looking at the past 10 years of bubbles and bursts, but really they weren't just like, oh, here's bull market, here's bear market. It was, is Bitcoin and crypto gonna succeed and exist in six months from now? That's kind of how it was. So I kind of don't look at it in that sense. I think we have decades and decades and decades really left to go. And really what I meant by simplicity, and maybe you can explain this macro a little bit better to me, but I don't, I don't like how economists and media pundits and sometimes like some of the uh, uh, crypto, like those who, who are um, kind of these crypto economists will like very simply say, okay, the Fed is going to 
raise hikes four times this year. Therefore, crypto is going to do this. It's like it's never been that simple. So why now? Why is it different this time? It's not different this time. And everybody's a uh, a genius, in yeah. that, you know, especially in a bull market. <laughs> but then everybody likes to make these huge, wild predictions that inevitably don't come true. It's funny. You talk about four rate hikes this year. Goldman Sachs are the ones who just predicted four rate hikes for 2022. There you go. I can look back historically, but they've effectively been wrong with their rate hike predictions every single time it's ever happened, right? So even the smartest people in the room, the ones who have their finger on the pulse, the ones who are probably literally talking to the Fed on a day-to-day basis, don't know what's going to happen, right? So you zoom that into, obviously, these crypto economists, which includes myself. We all love to make predictions. There's nothing wrong with that. But you just can never speak about the future with certainty, right? Nobody has a crystal ball. If anybody had a predictive model that worked every time or knew exactly what was going to happen with the government or the Fed, we'd all be exceptionally wealthy, right? And that person would uh, consume every follower on Twitter and would have an amazing, uh, you know, system moving forward. It just never happens. I think what's important is just to sort of, like she keeps saying, it always comes back around to zooming out, like you said. For the first time ever, I think this year, the narrative that Bitcoin is going to zero and that crypto is not here to stay is finally officially dead, right? And you've been here a lot longer than me. I only started in 2016. So you really experienced that pain, being called crazy, being the nut job in the room, the guy who believed in vapor that was never going to come to fruition. That's not happening anymore, right? There are way too many people invested in this. Way too much money coming in, whether you cheer Wall Street money and venture capital or not is a separate conversation. That money is here and those people protect their asses, right? That money is not going to zero. Bitcoin has proven itself. The question now is, are you willing to experience this roller coaster to stick with it and ride it out and not, you know, spaz every single time there's a 10% or 20% or 50% drop and have conviction that this is a long-term asset? We've been here, what, 13 years in total? Myself only for five, but Bitcoin's been here for 13 years. What happens in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Markets rise. It's going to go up. People just need to zoom out and chill. Well, I think it's a lot of it is because, and I'm I'm guilty of this too, we create our income around like these massive price gains that we have during the bull market and we change our lifestyle and how we live to to be like okay this is how much it's going to be a bull market forever and yeah i've so um i've always been open with this i was on like a death sex and money podcast with npr but i've lost all of my money like twice in my my short 10 year adult life cuz i'm only 32 one time was in the first bitcoin bull market the second time was when i went to prison and then uh had to like restart when i got out so I very quickly had to learn that you have to like live a lifestyle based on bear market and then save. But, um, you know, being a DJ for, for two decades and a music producer, you've probably lived with like, how do I deal with highs and lows? Do you kind of have any advice for my listeners who may be worried about this losing sleep over how they're going to like manage their lives if a bull market doesn't come for a year? God forbid. Yeah. I think you certainly touched on the very core of it, which is to always live lean, always live as if you're at the worst circumstance and not at the best. Even with a massive portfolio when you're doing exceptionally well, my wife and I talk about this all the time, you still have to live on the income that you're making and pretend that that's all you're ever going to have in case that portfolio goes to zero, right? And largely, you know, a lot of people's income is also dependent on the market being successful. 
right? Yeah. So it's important to have it's important to have separate streams of revenue, things that are going to be reliable no matter what happens with the market. As you touched on, I've gone broke so many times I can't even count going back. <laughs> now they weren't they weren't fortunes, right? They weren't fortunes, but I've gone all in on stocks that were listed on the stock exchange that literally went to zero and ridden it all the way down. I've had times where I was making an absolute killing DJing and then all of a sudden it completely dried up. I was irrelevant and didn't know really how the next uh, rent check was going was gonna to get paid. You know, And so I think experiencing that for years, I'm 45, you're 32, right? So it took yeah. me actually a lot longer, I would say, than at most. I was a pretty irresponsible jackass for the uh, first 30 some years of my life that I you know, never. got married and had a family and things, things got more serious, you know? Yeah, I know people don't know that me, which is probably a good thing. Um, but I think that the, the advice, you know, there's a lot of people, let's say in this market, depending on their portfolio who want to be full-time traders, right? I think that's the worst decision you can make, no matter how big your portfolio is. The math just doesn't work out. The pressure doesn't work out. The mentality and emotion don't work out when it becomes your sole source of revenue. My advice would be, Keep your day job and use that money to invest in the market so that you can eventually retire at a more reasonable point, right? And, and I think nobody wants to hear that. So many people come into crypto as a get-rich-quick scheme, myself included. I came in 2016, 2017 because it was this like world of these unicorn 100x pumps where money was being printed and thrown into your account. And I got lucky by having good timing and experienced some of that, right? But- I also went through 2018 and 2019 and lost most of it. Right. But you learned from those mistakes and you were, and you, you made it to the next trading year and the next bull market. And that's kind of the best advice I always say too, is like, just make it through one bear cycle and you'll just, you'll, your opportunities for the next one will be crazy because you'll have learned all of your mistakes and you know, kind of like what to look out for and things like that. But that's the caveat. You have to learn from your mistakes and most people don't. Right. It's amazing how quickly events of the past are erased by new emotional highs. And that goes for like human beings, but also governments and the Fed. Uh, you go through 2020, 2021, it's like a repeat of all of the disasters of 2008 and 2009. And yeah. it's as if all of the greed and FOMO erased the memories of all the bad things that happened during that time. But you absolutely nailed it, right? You want your life like a chart if you're a trader. You want your life and portfolio to just be higher lows, right? Yeah. You may come back down, but as long as you're better than where you were last time you were at the low, then your life has dramatically improved. But I mean, at the very bottom line, I don't necessarily sell Bitcoin, right? I believe it's a retirement account, but I trade a lot of things and I'm always taking profit, always taking profit and locking in gains. That's how you survive. What are some of the best ways to do that? Sometimes people feel guilty selling their their tokens and things like that in different ways. I, I think that you just have to remove the emotion from it <laughs> yeah. and you have to have it, which is very difficult. But I, yeah. And I think you have to have a fixed plan before you enter, right? That's the problem it's I think with most smart. people. I think most people say, I'm buying this new paradigm, uh, never selling it. It's going to you know go up forever. Mm, that's not a responsible way to approach it. If you're a trader, you say, listen, I'm in. If this thing doubles, I'm taking out my original investment and riding with the house's money, something like that. Or scaling in and scaling out is something that I always tell people to do because it removes almost all the emotional decision-making. Every single time you sell is stressful. 
In fact, I find selling to be much harder than yeah. deciding when to buy, right? Deciding when to sell. Is, nobody talks so about true. that, but deciding when to sell is much harder. But if you've predetermined in advance, like two days when you're of depression that. that follow, yeah. like selling. Yeah. You're like, and then you see it and you watch it and you're like, you FOMO back in higher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody's revenge traded. Everybody knows exactly. Every person is the same, man. Like, uh, you know, until you learn. But the bottom line is like, every time you sell, you shouldn't view it as a stressful decision. You should actually view it as reducing the stress of future decisions, right? If you reduce your position by 20%, you've gotten your money out of the market, you're letting it ride. Every single time you sell, it's less stressful. It's not binary. You shouldn't be doing everything all at once. That's really the way. For me, the things that become long-term investments for me outside of perhaps Bitcoin and Ethereum is like a trade that went exceptionally well, but I'm still riding the last 25% of that trade. I've sold 75% of it. And the last 25%, I don't care what happens. It can go to zero or it can go up a thousand and, and make me a gajillionaire. Perfect. That's terrific. But I'm playing with the house's money. There's no stress in that decision. Bitcoin and, and largely Ethereum have become this like, probably it, it, they've become this large, you know, cash, you know, sink, huge, like, you know, trillion dollars, over trillion dollars of 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 uh, market capitalization, and we're talking about the trading volume too. So it's become this kind of like way for the world to trade the daily mark, the daily what how they feel about where the world is going, about how they feel about governments and different. So you have the Bitcoin markets going to get affected directly from Kazakhstan, which had happened last week, or then the U.S. Fed, you know, raising rates could you know so direct global events, black swan, white swan events you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and people love the volatility. I saw a message in one of my chat rooms this morning. It was like, it's like, oh, the volatile days are coming back. They're here to stay. And people love that, you know, but at the same time, I've noticed, and maybe you can back this up by data or tell me if I'm wrong. I've noticed that a bunch of my, or maybe my investments have gotten better, but I've noticed that a lot of my investments have not been as volatile or the tokens that I've been supporting are not as volatile as kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum has been maybe because they're not as decentralized, maybe because they have treasuries backing them and they're so new that therefore it's not, and they, because they have specific vesting and things like that, they're not as volatile. And that's why you see some of these tokens being now, people are fleeing into them for like the safety of the volatility. It's very interesting. I, I tend to agree with that. And I think it's just a matter of more tokens entering the market, more participants entering the market, and more confidence that the market is not going to zero, as we talked about before, which sort of allows some of these to decouple from Bitcoin. Historically, you know, if Bitcoin moves massively, altcoins indiscriminately take a worse beating, right? Upside or downside. They they just, if Bitcoin get moves, a honey badger decides to make a big decision, all altcoins tend to suffer a similar fate. They're effectively, it was, there was Bitcoin and all altcoins, and you had to watch what was happening with Bitcoin to determine when it was safe to even be in altcoins. Well, now you can see with any metric that, you know, Bitcoin dominance is dramatically decreased over time, right? Yeah. Uh, it's roughly just about 40% of the market at this point. I mean, it was only a year or two ago that we were talking about, you know, 70% uh, market dominance of Bitcoin. And as it ceases to dominate the market and the market matures more, you get to see these sort of outliers that can perform well. And we had these alt seasons in the past. It was always a meme, right? Everything does 100x at the same time, right? Everything goes 10x at the same time for a month, right? That's not a healthy market. As fun as it was, it's not a healthy market. What we see now 
is we see sort of sector by sector alt seasons while everything else either languishes or trades sideways. That's actually a healthier market, right? We, you could tell it. 2020, DeFi summer, right? We were in this horrible sort of stretch for Bitcoin. It had gone down to 3,800 in March, but these DeFi projects were popping off left and right. You could zoom to 2021, another DeFi summer sort of, but NFT summer, right? NFTs run Saturday Night Live, like went completely oh, yeah. mainstream. NFT-based tokens doing exceptionally well regardless of the market. Then, of course, Facebook rebrands to Meta and all these Metaverse tokens go nuts. Nothing else is really moving, but Metaverse tokens are going crazy. So you can sort of find these genres or sectors within the crypto market and you can enjoy those moving uncorrelated somewhat to Bitcoin. Of course, listen, when the whole market drops, everything is going to drop. It's just a matter of proportion, right? Finding the finding yeah. those outliers that don't get as destroyed or that continue to rise in that in that dropping market. I mean, what are we are we looking at another industry? So we're going to have this summer it's going to be like insurance token summer. Like what are we what do you think there could be? Uh we we've kind of we're kind of covering all the bases now. Maybe sports, but that's really part of NFTs. Yeah. I have my thoughts, you know. Um I think that uh the metaverse narrative will continue. The yeah, NFT so. narrative will continue very, very strong, although you'll have to find the winners, right? And so there's always that caveat. There's these first movers, you know, you could call Axie play to earn gaming, right? You can call Axie Infinity maybe the first mover. Well, that has suffered of late. You know, Sand, Mana, they they kind of fell furthest and, and hardest when when the market yeah. corrected because they moved first. Now it's so maybe more you look for the next ones. Yeah. So I was gonna say now I think. Two narratives that I think will be absolutely huge outside of Web3 as well. I think ZK snarks and rollups, effectively anything that makes layer ones faster and cheaper is going to be a huge narrative because the reality is that we don't have any blockchains that can operate right now at scale in a vacuum themselves. It's fun when we have a couple hundred million people interested in crypto. If there's billions of people using crypto, we don't have any blockchains that can that can accommodate that, right? So yeah. any solutions, band-aids, or fixes or patches for that, I think you're going to do exceptionally well. That's why maybe Matic was the first mover in the layer two space, right? We saw oh, this yeah. huge move from Polygon, right? And so maybe we see others uh, that follow. There's another roll-ups platform that's very small that was called MetisDAO that had this absolutely massive move of late sort of after Matic went. So maybe we see- I can't stop thinking of the candy, like fruit roll-up. What's a roll-up? <laughs> everybody says fruit roll-ups. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a it's a way of like basically bulking transactions together and putting them back on the main chain so that you take less block space on the main chain. It's a layer two solution. We had a-, a a company uh, on the show last week called Mint Layer that I think we're going to be, you know, investing in potentially uh, working with them. But they're kind of doing exactly the similar thing on top of Bitcoin by creating like checkpoints of proof of work uh, on top of Bitcoin blockchain, but at the same time having their own side chain that does not use merged mining because merged mining has now been proven to be like a paradox that cannot be solved. There's no incentivization. So like, I'm really excited you have the pocket network too we've had on the show there i am very bullish on some of these things that take everything that we've learned and experienced on a sandbox or small level and grows it to the mass scale that everyone can use it but still have no very little decentralization trade-offs yeah i think we're we've we've accomplished the zero to one moment you know and everybody obviously knows that it's peter thiel or you know zero to one is the challenge that's where the, the massive invention happens that changes the world. Getting from one to 10, 50, 100, that's where all the entrepreneurs step in and basically improve on what's been 
created, right? So Bitcoin sort of, you can call Ethereum, they're the zero to one. Now we have to fix those things and make them work in the real world. I'm not saying that Bitcoin needs fixing for all the maximalists out there who might get angry at the, at me. I'm just saying if you want it to operate Smart and be scaling. the core, right, the, whore, the core of a financial system for billions of people, obviously there's going to be need to be things besides Bitcoin's layer one, <laughs> you know, network. And so, yeah, so I believe anything, that's one of my thesis is that, you know, layer twos and anything that makes uh, layer ones cheaper and faster will be one. I think we're going to see a huge move into decentralized social media. That's just me completely conjecture. There's no specific project, nothing that I'm thinking of. I just think, you know, watching Jack sort of speak about what was going on at Twitter, seeing how the world is sort of moved and manipulated by fake news on social media, things like that. I just think it's a one of the few really natural compliments for true decentralization would be decentralized social media. I think that's going to be something we're going to see people talking about. And I've sort of started to see... You start, sorry. Sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah, I've just sort of started to see that narrative start to creep in. Like I saw SBF talking about it sort of passively in an interview and others, you know, big names in this space are sort of starting to mention it, which to me means it's time to pay attention because they're probably already been invested in something for six months. <laughs> I I get nervous to, to, to and I, I this is where I actually agree with Jack's, Jack's maximalism here, is I don't agree with, right now at least building the web three or the metaverse or whatever we want to call it on top of like proof of stake based blockchains. Uh, well, the, the, the thing is you're in this situation now, I think where Bitcoin can't accommodate it and you're not going to stop it from being built. So it's a bit of a catch 22. I'm not saying that in theory, you or him are wrong. I think in a perfect world, that's exactly where it would be built. There's no stronger core or base for anything, obviously, than Bitcoin financial. But if you can't do it right now on Bitcoin, people are not going to wait to build the metaverse because there's no solution yet yeah, I see on Bitcoin, right? And, and more importantly now, I think that the next step in that that's really important to consider is we have the largest centralized entities in the world building metaverses. So it's sort of like a trade-off. Do you want to live in the Mark Zuckerverse? right? Which is Facebook is literally becoming like a centralized metaverse with billions of users already baked in. Or should we cheer for whatever decentralized solution evolves, even if it's not the one that we ideally want to see built or built on the layer that we necessarily want to see it built? So I think that that's a challenging position. It's fun to say, yeah. but if there's no solution there to do it on Bitcoin, I don't want to wait 10 years and have everybody live in a centralized metaverse as opposed to a inferior decentralized one. True. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, none of them can operate at scale yet. And and nobody wants to hear this, but centralized systems, there's certain things that centralized systems are better at, right? Like Visa can can process a hell of a lot more transactions than any blockchain, right? It's, so there, there's still that trade-off. So we need things that can operate at scale. Maybe the one you're talking about gets us to scale but right now, I think it's just a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. Like the metaverse is coming, whether it happens in crypto at all, right? It could be non-crypto native at all. Exactly. And that would be worse. Like doing the metaverse without any blockchain infrastructure is like just, it's just a, a video game. It's all it is. It's a video game because it's like building a cryptocurrency with a Google spreadsheet. What's the point? <laughs> There's no decentralization exactly right. there. So, I mean, that's what I want 
kind of I kind of push hard into the listeners is that you like without I understand there's trade-offs with decentralization and we have to understand that it is a path and a spectrum and getting there uh, and and understanding the distribution and understanding the different aspects and the technical things behind it. That's what I'm here for to help you guys do that. But at the end of the day, if there's no decentralization, even from the get-go, then what's the point? Why are we here? What are we doing? And I just want to kind of go back to that always because I I think there's going to be a lot of like throwing around of these easy terms but it's not actually going to be what those are. And maybe people will get wrecked potentially. Right. And I mean, consider this, I always sort of say this jokingly, but there's some truth behind it. Like I already don't like Facebook, right? (laughs) The last thing I need, the last thing I need is to put on a VR helmet and have like a crazy conspiracy theorist that I went to high school with screaming about screaming at me about lunatic ramblings from an avatar. Right. Like, yeah. The last thing I need is to like take the problems that we already have with social media and expand upon them into the metaverse. Right. It doesn't solve anything. It becomes just a cooler way of perpetuating all the problems that we have and perpetuating fake news. That's not what we want. Like we do not want Facebook, whatever your thoughts on them. We don't want Facebook controlling the metaverse. Come on. Yeah, you're right. We don't we don't want them controlling the metaverse. And but but even some proof of stake systems could be. Worse because if you have this this belief that the stakeholders control the whole narrative and control the censorship resistance and control the immunity of the ledger, if there's like the belief, then you'll be more free to do what you want. But um, money dire- is the direct method for power and control. So if you have all the stakeholders, uh, if there's a financial incentive to really kind of take control of that system. And you can see with like fake news has a huge financial incentive. You know, being the next president, that's multi-billion dollar financial incentive. Help being a world leader, to be able to influence the direct ears and eyes of people, that's worth trillions of dollars. But, and I go back to proof of work with a proof of work based system. Not it really mean for this to turn into this type of show, but I get oh, worried please. sometimes. Is that with a proof of work based system, because you're talking about decentralized energy that can't be like easily uprooted and moved around or taken over then and the incentive of the integrity of the network is the only financial incentive rather than if you make a financial incentive to take over the network to spread your own information and take control of the ears and eyes i i'm always wargaming this that's kind of where i go well we've never we've had no lack of examples of problems with theoretically decentralized proof of stake networks having their issues, right? I mean, every one of these blockchains has been off- offline. Even Ethereum in the early days had to be backed up, right? They had yeah. to, to shut it down, back it up, and uh, start again from, from another point, right? I think, um, I think a lot of that is to be expected uh, in the early days of any technological advancement, right? You're going to have problems. But Solana's had problems at scale. Even Matic now, as we're talking, is having these major problems with gas fees and scale because of some sunflower farming game that's been launched on it, right? And that's my point is that none of them really work at scale yet. So I think that's crazy. You have to be you have to be skeptical of all of it, and and not and that's not inherent to proof of work or proof of stake. I Even just Bitcoin's think an experiment. It's very yeah. right. It's very important for people to realize that all of this is super early days, and you're speculating on this technology actually working. We know at the core that Bitcoin works for a peer-to-peer cash system 
and as a digital store value. Its narrative is solidified. It's going nowhere. Any of these other ones, in theory, I, I don't think Ethereum could fail. I think Ethereum could be sort of, yeah, sort of could could, could agree, eventually yeah. the the fees and and the and the and the slow transactions could become problematic. But the rest of them, you never know, right? That it's got the network effect, Metcalf's law. You know, obviously, I just think it. The, the longer it succeeds, the longer it's expected to survive. But everything else, there's this chance. I, I'm not. I, listen, I'm invested in a lot of these projects. I'm a huge bull on a lot of them. But I also, in the back of my mind, always understand what you said. Is that you know, there there are black swan events that could happen that could take out any of these networks. Of course. Sorry to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to PowerSwap or untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap, because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain and Polygon look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain. Instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. Untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap. If you're using any of the other decentralized protocols, you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing, beautiful Paraswap routing system, and it's fully decentralized too. It's gorgeous. I'll talk to you guys soon. It's kind of crazy because uh, do you think COVID was the like a black swan event that the world, you know, people were predicting that there was going to be some event in the early 2020s. No one really knew but it was almost like the world needed some sort of like washout. And it's a little bit of a scary thought to think that maybe the world, uh, you know, the energy of the world manifested this like kind of forest fire that we've created. Uh, it's, it's scary thoughts over the last Yeah, I do years. think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely <laughs> think that that COVID has been a black swan event and a catalyst for good and bad, to be quite honest. So yeah. COVID, I mean, <laughs> Make it very clear. COVID's bad. Yeah, it's very. You know, bad, yeah. and and, and, and uh, you know, I've seen it ruin a lot of people close to me's lives. I think that level of death, it's it's absolutely depressing and horrifying. But, right, if we want to paint a silver lining, crypto like died March of 2020. Right, that was that was we got it the did. narratives in March 2020. Crypto was uh, Bitcoin was 3,800 dollars. Crypto is dead. It's going to zero. It's over. A lot of us were like starting to think about what we were going to do for money when the world was shutting down and our crypto holdings had gone to vapor. No income for and, months. Like it was nothing. Right. I remember. Yeah. But what happened? But what actually happened was that there was a bit of a grand awakening because of the way that the Fed and the United States government and central banks around the world reacted. There was this sort of grand awakening that actually massively benefited crypto and anyone involved, massively obviously benefited anyone who is in stocks or hard assets, and also drove a lot of people towards investing in an awareness that you couldn't leave your money in the dollar. So out of this disaster, I think, rose a much healthier mentality about money and investing uh, that maybe people didn't have any awareness of. I, listen, I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. 
But we know that most people in crypto who thought they were screwed completely in March of 2020 yeah. have come out of it probably exceptionally wealthy. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, that's kind of crazy. It's uh, And so we've never seen any, you know, we haven't seen the emergence of like political NFTs yet. We haven't seen the emergence of, of, of you know, political campaign DAOs. Well, we haven't really had a major campaign yet. We haven't had a congressional, we're going to have a congressional campaign very soon in the U.S. and then a presidential campaign in two more years. So I think that by that time, you'll see crypto have a huge influence on that. But I wasn't going to ask you that. I wanted to understand, and we were alluding to earlier in the show, you know, play to earn uh, has been around for a long time. Uh, tokens, airline miles, gaming points has been around a long time. Fan loyalty and music and movies has been around a long time. I mean, even before the internet, this concept of maintaining the fan and everything, you know, and having a decentralized fan base, it was around a long time. But what about the last year? Because, like you said, March of 2020, everyone thought they, they, it was going to go away. But look at the look at the independent artist recording, independent movie industry, like where you have independent artists in their basements being able to rise to be instant global world stars. I mean, the NFT gave rise to that. What is it about the NFT or crypto that changed everything, you know, how their relationship between fans or, or, or political, even political, um, political base, like the relationship between, you know, your constituents and things like that. How did that change? Well, I think we had a sort of this perfect storm where we already obviously had seen this sort of proliferation of people becoming famous on the internet or on social media, being famous just because they're famous or the size of their following. And then that alongside the catalyst of COVID making people basically be in this pressure cooker where they were forced to find a way, right? And so the gig income, the work at home, never go back to the office idea that seemed crazy before became internationally accepted all at once, right? I mean, people who don't have to go back to an office are never going back, right? I mean, we can all do this. Yeah. We can talk on Zoom, whatever it is, whatever medium you use with our helmets on in the metaverse, we're all going to be hanging out uh, without ever going back to an office. And people were forced to find a way. And the NFT, like you said, gave them that power. I can speak from music you know, I, I had this long career and it's very, very hard to build a real dedicated fan base. Like how many one hit wonders have you seen in the music world, right? Who yeah, think right. they're on top of the world for six months and you literally can't remember their name two years later, right? And so I think there was this idea, at least one that I embraced. And my wife is an internet marketer and it was something that she kind of taught me very early. Her belief was that you needed basically a thousand super fans. Right. And we're talking not not a thousand people who interact with your work or who listen, but like a thousand people who will buy anything you put out, who will support everything you do, who will be listening to every piece of music. Right. So that and then you can sell them merchandise or they'll buy your music and you'll make they'll come to your shows. Right. They'll invite their 10 friends in their favorite city. And that's what's going to give you that core audience to sort of build an income from. And for music, that was in a time when people we're sort of eschewing major labels, right? If you can't get a record deal in the past, you were never going to make it as a musician. But SoundCloud and Spotify and all these platforms, Bandcamp, you know, sort of push that away. You could make money, 
without ever, you know, having a big tour or a record label because you kept 100% of the money yourself yeah. and you were interacting directly with your fan base. And you could do that with just a couple thousand fans, right? NFTs have unlocked that to a level that was unimaginable before, right? And, and I mean, wow. now, like with what, yeah. you know, with Blau and guys like that are doing with Royal, I mean, you can literally buy interest in your artist's career or in their music. You can own a piece of the royalties now with NFTs, it's absolutely mind blowing how easy it is to monetize your art. Your your art. I mean, you why saw, don't we do right, that for Ford, our podcast? Why aren't we like issuing royalties for our pod? We should be proving the utility. Well, you know, Sean Puri, are you familiar with him? No. Uh, he sold. He was not a crypto guy. I had him on the podcast. He basically did this deep dive for two weeks into crypto, and he decided he has a very very popular podcast, millions of listeners. Yeah. And he decided uh, to sell. I believe it was five minutes of airtime on his podcast because it's been full of sponsors for years. You can't get space on his podcast as an NFT. So it was like an NFT release. I think it was a one of one. There was a market open auction for market and it sold for tens of thousands of dollars. I'm not sure who's used it. He was like, you can come on That's and you so can like, cool. you can pitch your business for five minutes to my audience. You can, you can literally like, you could be a company and you can run a commercial. Or you can literally be a lunatic and come and sing like, you know, yeah. uh, Oh, Susanna for five minutes. I don't care. Whatever it is, you're going to get this five minutes of airtime. And he sold it for, I can't remember how much, $30,000, $50,000 for five minutes of airtime, right? And that's a perfect example of what's sort of possible when you unlock the power. And again- Well, let's take it know, a just, step further. He can then use the market capitalization of his outstanding NFTs as like to get a loan for like, you know, like accounts payable or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the possibilities are literally endless. In fact, we are kind of uh, behind, behind the times, the fact that we're not. Oh, doing no, this, man, we right? need to do stuff like this. I mean, we're the top podcast in the space. We need to do that. I mean, yeah, we saw Spencer, you know, we, you saw Spencer Dimwitty, uh, yeah. you know, like monetize his career and the sort of idea. And even before NFTs, I remember there were these platforms. I think it was Vernon Davis who was on the San Francisco 49ers. Risks. Like you could buy a piece of his career. Like, Which let's just back. say you bought a piece of Antonio Brown's career and you're watching him on TV walk off and then, you know, they terminated his contract the next day. So uh, what happens in that? Does, is Antonio Brown liable? Because he is potentially the cause of his own, of his own, you know, losing his own contract. And what if he had a million dollars worth of outstanding, you know, NFTs? What happens there? Is he, oh my God, I wouldn't want to be I, judge it, on it's, that case. It's a pretty endless, right. It's a pretty no. endless rabbit hole. And, and and what's interesting, I think that actually sort of plays to the macro labor. situation. See, it plays to the macro situation of what we're seeing with uh, regulation in general, right? Without clarity, you can't do these things because the there's problem. so much risk, so much risk as to you finding that you were like breaking the law five years later, right? And that, that's been the case with regulation, why everyone wants clarity, even if it's bad clarity, we just want some I mean, clarity. You're talking to a guy who we went to jail, do. so I get right. it. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Talk about preaching to the choir, um, but but yeah, I, I would imagine that there would have to be uh, major contracts and and uh, caveats in place. But yeah. the reality is, uh, listen, you're talking about people would blame him. I mean, we exist in a space where tensions are high and money is on the line, and people always want somebody to blame for their own bad financial decisions, right? Yeah, like, I would say if you're investing in Antonio Brown. In 2022, you know exactly what you're investing on, considering he's been kicked off multiple teams, has faked his vaccination cards, farting exactly. on his uh, doctor. Right, he's a lunatic. And I, like for whatever reason, I'm not disparaging him, but 
So no, I don't think he should be liable because you know what you're investing in and people should know what they're investing in and take personal responsibility for those decisions. Well, so the let me take the government side on this because I spent a lot of time talking to different, you know, market theorists and people who who need to predict what the government's going to do for their own, you know, the money that they're borrowing, the money that they're investing on behalf of people, various funds and things like that. And they kind of take the angle that that is with 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 governments the biggest mistake you could ever make is thinking that the government is stupid and that's how people lose huh. money. And the government sometimes can be slow. Government regulators can be slow, but they're not dumb. And what he was explaining to me, he was actually very brilliant, was that various regulators understand how, you know, the NFT of Antonio Brown's contract could very, very quickly turn into assassination markets, prediction markets, political takeovers, things like that very, very quickly. So their response is, look, we're not against, you know, NFTs and sports contracts and things like that. In fact, we have mechanisms to do so in, you know, in stock markets we have. And this is why they say that we need to control the registration. We need to know who are the token holders. We need to approve every transfer. That's kind of, so there is a balance and this will bring some sort of hyper balance, but that's kind of the other side because oh, like you we said, need, like, we need oh, regulation. We need yeah, regulation. Need the There's no question about that yeah. because we can't move forward without it. Whether you agree with it or not, the space needs it to move forward. Right. We need the clarity. And to your point, like governments move slowly. When the regulators finally make a decision, that decision is going to last for decades. They need to make sure that they make the right decision. Right. And so it, it makes sense that they're slow. And I'm in this 24 7. You're in this 24 7. And I have no idea what the hell is going on 90% of the time because it's happening so fast. Right. Say that again. We flip, we flip and innovate so fast in crypto that no human being could keep up. So imagine being, you know, a 70, 65-year-old guy from Goldman Sachs. Gary Gensler is a smart guy, right? He's Very never smart. gonna understand what the hell is happening in crypto, right? Whether he's evil or not, that's up to you to decide, but he's never gonna understand. He needs a hundred people who are advisors that have their finger on the pulse, and that takes time to hire and they have to write their reports. It's gonna take a very long time. I will tell you though. What is absurd is applying rules from the 1930s to a brand yeah. new technology and a brand new asset class that obviously doesn't fit into that framework. So even if they come up with a very loose framework, we need something so that people can innovate in this country without fear. And that's what most people want, right? They just want to innovate. They want to be able to build. I think Hester Peirce, you know, had has has a proposed safe harbor a number of times, which I think is a brilliant sort of bridge until there's regulation for those who don't understand that. Basically, she said, you get three years. You can launch your project in the United States. You have three years to decentralize and prove that you're not a security. And after three years, if you've done that, Godspeed. If not, you're going to have to come in and figure yeah. it out and register as a security. It would probably it would probably root out almost all the scams, though, overnight, too, because a, uh, a, like a sandbox type of thing you'd have to register for, even if it was like yeah. a light registration, like, hey, here are the owners and here's, but then we're going to go do what we want to do. That would create, you know, disincentivize all of the scams that are parading to be something that they're not. And so that safe harbor would be phenomenal. People would take advantage of it, but it would work 99.9% of the time. It absolutely would. And like you said, scammers aren't going to go register their names with the SEC, right? And so, <laughs> and, and it also plays to the idea, like we, I, I talk about this quite often, like we sort of have this bipolar idea of centralization versus decentralization, right? And it's one's bad and one's good. But I think the fact is that it's a massive sliding scale. And if we're even moving the needle in the right direction, we should see it as a win, 
right? You and yeah. and so like as much as we should aspire to full decentralization, that doesn't mean that we should be dismissive of anything that doesn't quite get there immediately if it's eons better than the centralized uh, the centralized competitor, right? So that's why Safe Harbor, you get this time. Like look look at Eric Voorhees, right? Yeah, I mean. Then it was more centralized and they've moved to decentralization over time, right? And that, that's sort of the model I'm talking about. And that's why I think some of this like starting purely decentralized, the idea of some of these DAOs and stuff, it's really great in principle, but it's not going to work in reality because something needs to have, kind of have a passionate leader or group to get it started to yes. lead it on a path to decentralization. I want to use Eric as, an, as a great example here because what happens is without Safe Harbor, is it disincentivizes the innovators. Now, Eric is a great example, and he is an example of who didn't get disincentivized. No one remembers way back in like 2013, he launched, it was one of the, the people that got involved in the early part of Satoshi Dice. And Satoshi Dice did this very cool thing. And back then there was this, uh, oh man, I'm bringing back memories. There was, there was this thing called MPEX, M-P-E-X. And it allowed people to get these decentralized shares of potential Bitcoin companies. It was the ICO before ICOs. You, it would, Eric would raise Bitcoin and then issue shares on MPEX, which was just an IRC-based bot, uh, and then did dividends. It was like a decentralized stock exchange. And Eric got in trouble. He just had to pay like a fine, like an $80,000 fine with the SEC. But that scarred him for life because they, what the government was saying was, now, Doing decentralized stock market is brilliant, and that's coming. And the whole stock market will move yes. to decentralization. And MPEX had a registration system to allow for dividends and things like that. But again, because it was so, if there was some sort of safe harbor thing, maybe that would have been differently. How many people are not working on things because they're scared? You know. Yeah, and I, I want to incentivize everyone going right. into well. The United States is not incentivizing him right now, and that's the bottom line. And there are other governments that will happily lap that up and. Uh, we're seeing that. all that innovation, right? We're already seeing it, right? And so the United States is definitely at a major risk of not being the you know technological innovative center of the world that it that it is always purported to be, and that is solely because of their inability to offer any direction on, on crypto. Well, maybe maybe the world maybe in a hundred years from now they'll look back at Bitcoin as like the prisoner's dilemma for the for the world governments. It's like if you support it. Then you help it grow, but if you don't, you create that like reason for people to want to own it at the end of the day. But like obviously on a much more micro scale. But yeah, yeah. I mean, look at crazy. look at these payment companies, right? Where they just announced there's going to be a PayPal coin, right? Did they? Crypto, cri yeah, PayPal That's coin crazy. is going to be a new stable coin. It was literally just announced, right? And so, if you're Visa or Mastercard or PayPal, oh wow, or you're bank, right. This is or crazy. a bank or a government, like. You have to be cognizant of the fact that like your ancient payment systems are inferior to new technology. Whether you believe in crypto or not, you know that like ACH is not the end-all be-all final boss of cross-border transactions, right? It just doesn't work. Honestly, it's slow. PayPal coin would it, be very successful, yeah, I think. Yeah, it, it would. But PayPal has two choices, right? Be blockbuster and die because of crypto Netflix or adopt and try to, you know, reskin your business for this next generation. Yeah. And that's a smart thing that they're doing. But that's exactly what you're saying with governments. You can pretend it's not there. You can be dismissive of it, but eventually it's going to crush you. Right. And so these the smarter companies are realizing, well, there's a better way to do payments. I don't want to get crushed. I'm just going to innovate and adopt.
Well, you definitely are the the wolf of all streets because we've we've definitely covered every street, road, and avenue you know that we possibly can going back decades and now for the future. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on Untold Stories. And I want to just remind the listeners to check out your podcast, The Wolf of All Streets. Um, check out your newsletter. And I'm excited to be working with you on some projects going forward and hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, man. I mean, you know, I'm a, not only yes. a friend, but a huge fan. I, I very much look up to you. And you were a huge catalyst for the reason I started a podcast. And we're probably the first person giving me advice on it. So that's awesome. never forget that. It's good advice because it's working. So it's awesome. working. Right. Whatever you did is right. I'll see you.